You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The couple had been roaming the Midwest for several weeks during the summer of 1965, always on the hunt. Two nobodies in a black Ford station wagon purchased for $100 at a used car lot in Mead, Ohio, called Brother Whitey's. It was a third vehicle they had gotten off the minister in as many years. The man on the passenger's side was turning to fat and believed in signs and had a habit of picking his decayed teeth with a buck pocket knife. The woman always drove and wore tight shorts and flimsy blouses that showed off her pale, bony body in a way they both thought enticing. She chain-smoked any kind of menthol cigarettes she could get her hands on, while he chewed on cheap black cigars that he called dog dicks. The Ford burned oil and leaked brake fluid and threatened to spill its metal guts all over the highway any time they pushed it past 50 miles an hour. The man liked to think that it looked like a hearse but the woman preferred limousine. Their names were Carl and Sandy Henderson, but sometimes they had other names too. Donald Ray Pollock is the author of the short story collection Knock'em Stiff. His new novel is The Devil All the Time. Thank you for joining me, Don. Thanks, Rick, for having me. Don, you spent a lot of your time in an actual city called Knock'em Stiff, haven't you? Yeah, I grew up in Knock'em Stiff. It wasn't actually a city. It was more a... uh maybe a, a very small village. There were probably uh, four or 500 people lived there. And I, I lived there from the time I was, uh, you know, about a year old until I was 17. Now, talk about Knock'em Stiff, the real Knock'em Stiff. This is in somewhere in rural Ohio. Uh, it, it's, a, as you say, a village. The way you describe it, it sounds fascinating. Well, I sort of took uh, the uh, reputation that the place had, which, you know, it had a pretty tough uh, reputation uh, when I was growing up. And Mm -hmm. we're talking during the 1960s. And I took that reputation and uh, I I just amped everything up, you know, as far as the book of stories went. Um, There was uh, at one time... um, three small general stores and a bar and a church and you know then i say you know four or five hundred people uh today the only thing left is the church uh it's pretty much uh, a ghost town wow it's gone then isn't it now yeah pretty much gone uh, to, you, as a you grew up there until you were 17 you're in the 60s so Talk about growing up in a village in the middle of America. That must have been really kind of odd because America at the time, uh, a lot of us were growing up in the middle of suburbs or cities where there was a lot of communication. You know, TV was really Mm -hmm. common. It doesn't sound like it was particularly common there. And you were kind of cut off from the world. Well, I mean, we weren't, uh, you know, there was a a town called Chillicothe about, 13, 14 miles away, which is a paper mill town. Um, maybe 20,000 people live there. So that's where everybody went, you know, for their shopping. And, and my dad worked at the paper mill. One of my grandfathers worked there. Uh, as far as TV goes, uh, you know, it's pretty much, uh, you might be able to get two or three stations, depending on the weather. Uh, and, um, you know, went to a small, well, a fairly small country school, um, but they did have a library, and you know, I I, I was a, a big reader even you know, growing up in Knockham Stiff. You know, I, I loved to read books, and uh, though we didn't really have any books at home, you know, I was able to to get books at the school library. I don't think I had a public, uh, I mean, a library card. Uh, from the uh, public library in town until I was, I, I might have been 15 or 16 before I got a card from there. But, um, you know, it was pretty much, uh, you know, we my parents owned some land and, um, you know, they had about 80 acres there and, and there were farms on both sides of us. And so, you know, we did a lot of stuff in the woods and, uh, 
Uh, you know, pretty much what you can imagine you're going to do out in the sticks. <laughs> now, what kind of things did you read as a kid? What kind of books got you interested in reading? You know, um, at this right now, I think the things that got me interested in reading were uh, my grandmother read a lot of uh, these um, uh, these romance magazines like True Romance, and then the, and my dad read a lot of detective magazines, and I think those were really probably the first things that I read. I can't really remember, you know, too much about it, but I probably, you know, it, it was those type of, you know, really, uh, well, probably for the time, sort of lurid magazines, uh, <laughs> stories, and stuff like that, and then later on. You know, somebody asked me the other day what my uh, if I could remember what my favorite book was uh, when I was young, and and I the only one that I can really remember that I I I loved and I read it over and over again was this uh, book by Christopher Morley called The Haunted Bookshop, and we had that in our school library, and I read this thing over and over again, and then probably when I was about. Um, maybe 15, I read a book by a writer named Earl Thompson, and it's called A Garden of Sand. And he was writing about the kind of people that I grew up with and the, and the people that I was around all the time. You know, it was pretty, uh, you know, uneducated, poor people having a tough time with life. And that was the first time that I realized that you could actually write about people like that. And that it, uh, you know, was acceptable, I suppose. Well, you make it more than acceptable as you write about it in your uh, short story collection, in your novel. It's totally engaging. And we'll get to that. But I'd like you to talk about um, moving from such essentially like what a Hamlet. where did you go next? What, what what was the next step on your journey towards becoming a writer? Well, um, when I was 17, I talked my dad into letting me quit high school. I hated school. Absolutely hated it. And so the deal was, well, if I let you quit school, you have to get a job. And I got a job in a meatpacking plant uh, about 15, 20 miles from Knockham Stiff. And I worked there until I turned 18. And then I went to Florida for a few months, and uh, I was working in a nursery down there, and I wasn't making much money, and um, actually I was spending all the money that I made at the dog track. And my dad called me, and he said, hey, if you come back up here, I can get you on at the paper mail, uh, which was a union job, you know, uh, really good money, you know, for uh, somebody like me. And so I came up back up to Ohio, and... um, he couldn't get me on right then, so I went to work in a shoe factory. And then later on, you know, a few months later, I got on with the paper mill, which, you know, you got to understand, it was only 13 miles from Knockham Stiff in Chillicothe, and that's where I ended up, you know, and that's where I've lived all my life. Um, you know, and I worked at the paper mill until I was 50, which I, I quit, uh, it's been about a little over five years ago. Uh, so... You know, my as a writer, I mean, what ended up happening was the uh, paper mill had this program where they would pay 75% of your tuition if you wanted to go to college part-time. So when I was in my 30s, I got a degree in English and um, didn't do anything with it. I just wanted to get a degree. You know, I was like the first person in my family to get a college degree. And I, I got that degree, kept working at the mill. And then when I was 45, my dad retired from the paper mill. And I watched him. He went home and he, you know, it was like he was done, you know. He was pretty much lost and, you know, sitting in front of the TV. And and I don't know why that hit me like it did, but maybe it was, you know, my age. You know, I was 45. I don't know if it was a midlife thing going on there but I decided that I wanted to try to do something else and um, so I told my wife I'm going to try to learn how to write short stories and um, I said I'll give it five years and at 
the end of the five years, if nothing's happened, I'll give myself permission to quit. And so, you know, by the time I turned 50, you know, make a long story short, I had published maybe four, five, six stories, and I'd gotten accepted into the MFA program at Ohio State University. And I saw that as my way out of the paper mill because they were going to give me a stipend if I taught a class. And uh, it was, you know, for three years. And so I figured, well, this is it. You know, it's either go now or, or stay, you know, until I turn 65 or whatever. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting and very, I think, uh, it's a classic American journey, a, a, a up kind of upward mobility that is just, it's no longer possible now, is it? I mean, that kind of journey from uh, a, a very uneducated uh, part of, of America up through to a union job that play, pays a working wage, that actually pays you, you know, helps with the tuition of college, that stuff is in the past. Yeah, that's disappearing very quickly, very quickly. You know, when I started working at that mill in uh, 1973, there were probably 6,000 people worked there. And today, I mean, the mill still exists, but I'm just guessing I'd say there's maybe 1,200, 1,300 people still left. And I doubt very much. I don't know for sure, but I don't think they have that college thing, tuition thing going on anymore. Um, are they still union? They're still union, yeah. The, the unions had to give up some stuff, but but they are still union. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So far, anyway, it's uh, been able to hang on. Well, you know, um, I'd like it. One of the things that is really interesting about this book is we know that Knockham Stiff is a real place in the real world, and there were and are real people who, or there were at least real people who lived there. But what you do in in Knock'em Stiff and The Devil All the Time is uh, you create a world. You literally, for us, you build a world for us out of whole cloth, out of nothing. Because, uh, frankly, to me, the world of Knock'em Stiff and the world of The Devil All the Time, I I know more about Mars than I do about that <laughs> landscape. <laughs> so I'd like you to talk about just... In the as you started writing the short stories, they're much more driven by the the people in them. But you will also in the book you give us a map of the thing, and we get and and that's like you know that's what you'll find at the beginning of Lord of the Rings. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, as far as like the book of stories, Knockem Stiff goes, mm-hmm. there is a map in the front of the book, and geographically that map is very accurate mm-hmm. you know i've changed the names of you know some of the roads and uh and of course you know all the houses that are marked are are fictional and and stuff like that but if you took that map out to where knockham stiff it well it's still you know it's still the place is still named knockham stiff there's still a lot of people live there but there's just nothing out you know it's like a residential area almost mm-hmm. um but you could follow those roads, and um, you wouldn't get lost. You know, it would be uh, uh, it's pretty accurate that way. But I, um, I think probably part of it for me is you know the the reason that I do try to create it and, and make it uh, you know seem as a real world. You know, as a uh, uh, a place like that is that. I am very nostalgic for the place as it was at one mm-hmm. time, you know, and it's sort of like my way of making sure that the, the memory of it, you know, lives on. You know, even though, like as I said, um, the violence and the, the cruelty and everything is amped up, you know, uh, you know, 15 or 20 times, you know, what it was really like. Um I still, you know, uh, am, I don't know, maybe creating my own little record of, you know, this is the place I grew up in. And, you know, even though it's gone now, here it is on these pages. Well, I think that kind of paradox, in a sense, explains why the book is so engaging. Because even if the characters and the things they do and the backdrop 
are somewhat are somewhere between frightening, reprehensible, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, uh, disturbing. That your affection for the characters, for this place, comes through, and that's what I think helps make the reading experience makes it possible to read these stories and makes these stories engaging. And so I'd like you to talk about, um, you know, as a writer, just sitting down. It, it's like you you do um, give us like uh, little bits of the town and how you felt starting to put these bits together and which ones came to you first. Who who's the first character who just said you must write about me, Dawn? Now, well, okay. As far as with the novel with the devil all the time, the um, the first characters were the two the serial murderers. Uh, Carl and Sandy. Um, And I worked with them for a little while and then figured out that the novel wasn't going to work if it was just all about these two people because, you know, the the violence and the uh, everything else, you know, just the grittiness of their lives was just so relentless that people were going to, well, they were going to get quickly disturbed. Uh, and, and so then I, you know, I had this other character in mind whom, you know, I was kind of thinking about, and that was Arvin, uh, who is the, the young man who pretty much moves throughout the book and, and in the end ends up meeting these people. Uh, and, and he's a pretty decent person. And so, uh, so I had those people and then and so I was just pretty much just working with these characters, and then I added, you know, a, a couple of the preachers, and, and then I added the sheriff, and then what ended up happening for me was, you know, I had all these, what I thought were, these are pretty good characters to work with. Uh, there's a lot going on. But then I couldn't figure out how to, took me a while to figure out how to lay the story out so that there wasn't a bunch of confusion because there are, you know, these, uh, these layers mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, different things are happening, you know, with different people. And, and then I want them all to, you know, in the, uh, sort of coalesce there in the end or, or meet in the end. And so I had a hard time figuring that out for a while. I, you know, this was my first novel. I'd always written these stories that were 10, you know, 12, 14 pages long. And then the uh, idea of writing a, a, a novel was a li- little daunting for me at first. Well, I um, love the way you, you layer it. Uh, but I was asking about the stories. I mean, when you first sat down, you worked like all your life at, at a paper mill. Um, you've come from this small town. And you've you've got a college degree that you haven't done much with, but it you know you're the first in your family, and that's mm-hmm. really a big accomplishment. What character, what person made you say, "I want to try to write fiction"? Okay, well, uh, yeah. As far as when I was starting out and mm-hmm. with the stories, well, I pretty much fi- I knew fiction. It would have to be fiction, you mm-hmm. know, uh, if I was going to be a writer. And at first. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know, you know, really how to start or anything. You know, I'd gotten a degree in English, but I hadn't taken any creative writing courses or anything. I just You're uh, lucky. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, uh, I I don't know. I might have learned something, you know. I might have saved myself a little bit of time because what I ended up doing was I would read, uh, I would take a short story, say like a Hemingway story or a John Cheever story, and I would type it out on a typewriter. The, the entire story, you know, lay it out on a typewriter. And then I would do one of those a week and I would carry that story around with me and I'd look at it. And then, and that was pretty much, I did that for about a year and a half. Wow. What a uh, great education. That's smart. <laughs> well, it was, uh, you know, and it wasn't an, I had read in an interview with some writer that they had once done that, you know, and I thought, well, okay, I could do that. And, um, and it did get me a lot closer to the story and to seeing how they put a story together. So, um, so I'm going along for a, about two years there, and I'm trying to, I guess, copy other writers as mm-hmm. far as, you know, if I, say, uh, read a John Cheever story, then I would try to write a story about a, a 
East Coast suburbanite having an affair or something like that, or I try to write about a lawyer. I didn't know anything about these people. And so finally, I wrote a story called Bactine, which is really about these two losers who have been huffing Bactine in an old car, and they end up in this donut shop. And and it worked. You know, I, I knew when I finished that story, okay, okay, this is where I've got to go. This, this is what I've got to do because, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, I huffed back teen. And, uh, you know, there was a donut shop in my town, you know, that sort of thing. And I, and so I just, uh, you know, I started writing about people that I, I knew a little bit more about, you know. And I know that they say, well, you don't have to write about what you know. You know, you've got your imagination. But uh, I don't know if it was maybe I was maybe too old or whatever, but I just had all these you know, I had all this material from, uh, from you know, 40-some years of living, and, and so I just started using it, you know, the, the material on hand. Well, Bactine is, is such a wonderful story. <laughs> and I think this is a really good way for us as readers to get a wrap our brains around what you're doing. And one of the things that you had talked about earlier was that, you wrote out of a sense of nostalgia that no matter how tough that place was, no matter how dangerous it was, you still look back and and kind of at that with a longing and a kind of sweetness. And what's really effective, I think, is where this inner sweetness that that you like this place meets up with this, you know, gritty reality. And, and um we really aren't able to necessarily detect any of the sweetness beyond a kind of, as a reader, enjoying the reading experience. And I think that's a really, it's a very interesting approach, and I think it's really successful for you. Well, um, you know, I don't really know, you know, I, I've different people have, have told me different things. I think that one thing that I try not to do and that maybe helps is that I don't, try to judge the characters too much you know it's not like I'm telling some morality tale or anything like that and I try to leave my own personal judgment out of it you know I have sort of a fascination with people who end up in a place or a situation that they can't get out of and you know maybe it's because of you know their own personal mistakes or you know addictions or whatever or it might be that, that they were just born into it and it's just, you know, too big of a struggle to, uh, to rise above it. You know, and, and I do have a lot of, uh, I guess I do have a lot of empathy for people who are, you know, trapped in, in uh, uh, you know, a, a situation they can't get out of. And I think, you know, for the most part, you know, most of my characters are, you know, in a, uh, a place like that. Of course, some of them, you know, there are glimmers of hope here and there, but uh, but they have a hard time. They have a hard time getting out of it. You know, I, I'd like you to talk about, you know, the the level of, you know, your prose because it seems very scrubbed. It reminds me of a beautiful piece of furniture that's been really uh, highly polished, but not polished in an artificial way it's like you it's like when somebody takes a uh cross cuts a big stump and gives you a big beautiful stump and and just like uh lacquers it and you get this great table with all the natural edges on it i think that that comes mostly just from revision mm-hmm. and from you know, my attitude is, at least as far as my own work goes, and, and this is just speaking for me, that, you know, I mean, one adjective will suffice if it's the right one uh, as opposed to, you know, three or four. Or one little snippet of dialogue uh, is all you need if it's the right, you know, if it's the right words. But most of it just comes from revising over and over. And, you know, especially with those stories you know, there were a lot of them that I just, yeah, I don't know how many revisions I went through to get them down. You know, and my aim was always with the revision was, you know, once I had had the story was to try to cut, 
Mm. and to make it and i think probably that comes from you know reading a lot of hemingway and raymond carver and and stuff like that i just sort of uh enjoy that that sparse uh sort of prose you know uh one of the guys that um comes to mind when we read knock stiff is of course sherwood anderson mm-hmm. in in uh weinsberg uh you're kind of <laughs> <laughs> the the bad part of Weinsberg, the really, really, really bad part of Weinsberg, in well, a way. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I mean, I think uh, Sherwood Anderson probably did all he could do, you know, if you consider, you know, when, when his book was published and everything. Mm-hmm. He went about as far as he could go, probably, with, uh, with some of his stories. And then, you know, he didn't have the... Well, I guess maybe the freedom mm. that you know I had in you know in in the this century, you know, I you can pretty much uh, everything is uh, up for grabs, and and so I was able to convey a lot more grittiness and and so forth, uh, just the maybe the the cruelty and the um, violence and everything that he wouldn't have been able to do. They, they wouldn't have published his book if he'd have tried something like that. Yeah. After the collapse of religion in the centers, one mm. can howl anything at anyone. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a, from Stanislaw Lim. I'll just quote my sources. Now, uh, your your novel is, is really wonderful. It's super compelling. It's really a page-turner. I... I just was instantly immersed in it. And one of the things I noticed as I was reading it is that um, I think the way you perceive people is that when we look at everybody from the outside, we see one person, but every person has like a kind of a secret history that to them is very obvious, but to the people who see them and even the people who think they know them well might be completely invisible. And I like the kind of historic stretch of this novel because it goes back almost to the beginning of the 20th century and and gets us through much of the century. So talk about um, just creating that kind of historic feel because uh, um, uh, um, Willard's father um, is, you know, he's, uh, he's been around for a while. Arvin's father. Our, or, no, yeah, Willard's father. Well, Willard's father is Oh, it's the, is the, the uncle. Dead, the uncle. Yeah. Uh, er, Erskel. Erskel, yes. Um, yeah, he's been around, uh, you know, he's he was around, well, you know, uh, he was in Cincinnati uh, during the uh, big uh, influenza epidemic in 1919. Mm-hmm. So that's when he lost his uh, sweetheart. But, yeah, I'm, I think with me it wasn't so much – it was just that, you know, those backstories, that those little bits of information just make the characters more real. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much, you know, uh, you know, I always feel like, you know, I've got to tell you, i got to let you know, you know, who these people are and, and some of the things at least that have maybe uh, affected them or – you know, put them in the place where they're in now, but I try at the same time not to, not to overload it. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I'll pick maybe certain small, you know, or important events that happened to them, and uh, you know, just sort of uh, manage to stick that in there somewhere. Uh, now, one of the things I like about this novel is that though it has some kind of big themes in it, um, the first section is called sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We get the feeling, I mean, as we read it, we don't, uh, as a reader, I don't think he's writing about sacrifice. It more it rises like damp from the ground, which has been watered with the blood of pets and roadkill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so talk, talk about uh, uh, creating uh, Willard Russell and this his little uh, – altar behind the woods because I, I love that the way this is revealed to us back and forth your sense of plotting is really really cunning the the these layers you are talking about we'll see something and it's creepy and weird and yet we kind of like the guy and we understand why he's doing it and then we kind of later on we'll find out and 
we look back on find out a new piece of information, maybe from somebody else, mm-hmm. and we'll look back and we have a, a new perspective so that every time as we read more, what we've read before becomes more interesting. Well, yeah, I get, I'm not one of those writers who, I mean, I just don't lay it out there, okay, like this is the story and, and give you all the information that, you know, and let's just go forward with it. I, I do sort of move back and forth. Mm. But as far as creating Willard and the, I guess what it was is I had Arvin. I had his son as a character early on. And Mm -hmm. then, though, I needed to, I needed to move Arvin. I needed Arvin to be somewhere else, uh, you know, to fit in with the story that I had in my head. So fathers get a pretty rough uh, treatment in m- all of my writing, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. I don't know why, but they do. It sounds like and, your father was a fine man. And, but yeah, he was He was perfectly all right, you yeah. know. But I, uh, so Willard, though, he is definitely, uh, well, he, he gets damaged and uh, from the war and then from, you know, the, the things that are going on with his wife and, uh, though at the same time he's, you know, he's got these, um, uh, you know, he was raised in a religious home. Mm-hmm. And so, so really, I mean, and I don't know where it came from, you know, the, the sacrificial log and all that stuff. I, I can tell you this. I, one of the inspirations for all that was when I was growing up, there was a, an old man who lived, you know, quite a ways from our house, and he was a very religious person. And every evening, he would go out into the woods and he would pray. And if the wind was right, we could hear him. Uh, And and it would go on for maybe 15 minutes or so. And um, so that's one of the ways in which, you know, I used something that actually happened as part of the, you know, I just amped it up a mm-hmm. lot more and uh you know he was a he was a really fine person and well he's probably one of the finest pers- people i ever met um but i just had that you know i mm-hmm. just had that sort of image there from my childhood of and then i just made it creepy <laughs> <laughs> well i i have to say that this novel works quite well uh, as a horror novel in in many ways and and one of the things i think that lends it that feel is um that we don't think about much is the state of uh, medicine and disease and medical treatment back in the 60s in that uh, it was a, it was pretty dire compared to now. We Everybody wants to complain about health care now, but you read your book, <laughs> you'll be thankful for the state of health care yeah, right now. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, there wasn't much hope for you, you know, especially certain types of diseases or cancers or something like that you were pretty much a goner they mm-hmm. they couldn't do much for you except maybe try to alleviate the pain a little bit um as a horror novel i i guess maybe if you know the thing with me is like the things that actually happen i mean real horror like stuff you might hear about in the news is a lot more terrifying than you know, uh, say a supernatural kind. Tea garden. Uh, Preacher. Tea garden. Preacher tea garden. Yeah. He, he's way, way more scary than, <laughs> yes, he, than pretty much anybody you might, <laughs> might any other. He's almost scarier than the serial uh, killers, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least to me. No, I I, I agree. And, and uh, Lee, Lee Boddicker is, is it, as a man, and, and he's an interesting character. Because he's a good example of a man who kind of finds himself shoehorned into a smaller and smaller and more and more terrifying corner, and his reaction to it is not good. Yeah. Um, and, and I love the way. So talk about kind of at when you these characters all have kind of interesting trajectories, and we get to see them. When you created all these characters, did you? know their trajectories or did they just kind of come out as you like threw them at the wall and watch the blood drip down <laughs> it, well no actually when when i first started the book it was 
the only thing that I really knew is that, you know, I had these, I had Carl and Sandy and I had Arvin. Mm -hmm. And I knew that at some point towards the end of the book, they had to meet. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything else sort of came with just writing the novel, you know. Um, Actually, the the sheriff came. He was the last character that I created for Mm -hmm. the book. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I, I it's really hard for me to, I guess, explain, you know, how it all came together because it, you know, there would be pieces of it would come really fast and then there would be a, a lull and uh, uh, there wasn't anything happening and then it would, you know, it would pick up again. And um, so uh, I would almost call it a blur, you know, as far as like how it all came together and where I figured out you know, at the point where I figured out, okay, this is my story. So now all I have to do is clean this thing up and, and we're good to go. But um, I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, I, as I said, I have a hard time, I guess, talking about the creative process as far as how that book came together. Well, you know what it sounds like to me? It's like you had this mound of rotting meat. That was the two killers. A mound of less rotting meat. That was Arvin. And you put them like in a dark room and waited a few months and saw how the different thing, what grew up yeah, around them. What, what sort of a mold came up out of there. But yeah, I guess you could call it, uh, you know, you could describe it like that. When you were writing about these killers, uh, I'm just thinking of the was it the Starkweathers, the the yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, had you read up? Did you read much about serial killers? But actually, I did. I mm-hmm. read um, when I was starting out. I thought, okay, I need to, you know, I, I was pretty familiar just from following the news. You mm-hmm. know, I knew a lot about quite a bit. I think probably most people in America know more about serial killers <laughs> than they really need to know. Um, I don't but disagree. I, <laughs> But I did read several books um, about them, and then I read a book called uh, Buried Dreams, which was written by a nonfiction writer named Tim Cahill, a very well-respected mm-hmm. writer now. And this was his first book, Buried Dreams, and it was about John Wayne Gacy. And that was the last uh, serial killer book I read because— mm-hmm. That book even gave me nightmares, and, and I usually don't have nightmares, and it was uh, pretty scary. Uh, and I decided, okay, I, you know, I've got enough information here. I've got enough, done enough research on these people. So, um, so yeah, I did do some research. Well, I, I love the way too that you make all these characters for all the kind of horror and and uh, awfulness. I mean, there's every manner of bad things that could befall people that you could imagine and quite a few most people would not involve there's a a prisoner there's a a couple of uh, very interesting preacher brothers and, and I really like these guys these it seems like you have a kind of a lot of affection for them too as a writer I do uh they were the uh I had more fun with Roy and Theodore than anybody else you know that I was writing about in the book and um you took them to Florida, just like I took them to Florida. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, when people in Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia, I mean, when you ask them, you know, not everybody, but a lot of them, where would you really like to live, or where do you want to go on vacation? It's it's almost always Florida or Myrtle Beach, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they so they went to Myrtle or they went to Florida, and uh, and you know, and lived there quite a while, uh, or at least traveled around the south for mm. a, for a good many years uh but yeah i did have fun with them and they encounter somebody in jail some... <laughs> i won't i'll let the readers discover that <laughs> now one of the things that you do very well you have um a, a visionary prose writing style and and there's a lot there's um the villa the, the vision of uh of uh Miller in World War Two, which is a horrific vision, mm-hmm. but it's still like visionary. And I think too, uh, there's a there's one part uh, where a character dies, and and right after she dies, you refer to her first night under the ground. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was such an interesting perception, and that's what I think is the way that you create the world in this book. 
the whole this whole world it's um while i say obviously we know that there's a real knockum stiff in in ohio the way you created it, it's such a perfect fictional world and and what's nice too is that the stories start out like the blot starts in knockum stiff but the novel takes you grows that world and and that's mold and and sunge spreads further out <laughs> i'm afraid it's going to get to california <laughs> so please don't let it get there <laughs> but talk about creating that world with your visionary prose writing style well i think you know i mean you know and i'm probably repeating myself here a little bit but as far as like the the knock them stiff as a landscape or a setting or whatever mm -hmm. you know even though you know and and there were people even in my that live in my area who couldn't see this is all of the people and you know what goes on is fiction mm -hmm. but there is a geographical you know anchor there mm -hmm. well i don't know i don't know it was just I guess, you know, as I say, you know, I have a, uh, a nostalgia for the place and everything, and it was just uh, really easy for me to, it, it's it's probably, I will probably, if I am lucky enough to write any more books, they will probably all be set in Southern Ohio, you know, I'm real comfortable with that area and everything, but as far as the... It's like a biodome. Gee, I don't know about the, you know, about the, the visionary aspects of it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it uh, again, that's another thing that would be kind of difficult for me to even see. I mean, mm -hmm. I understand where you're coming from and what mm -hmm. you mean, but you're just out there typing. You know, it out there's, on the yeah, I'm just, I'm just writing, and you know, but I do think, you know, as far as um, Miller Jones, I believe is, uh, I can't remember the name of the character in that right offhand. My mem memory's slipping on me, but the uh, executed Marine, mm -hmm. uh, I needed for Willard to have a bad experience mm -hmm. in the war uh, that leaves him a little damaged, and that's what I came up with. You know, that's, Well, that was, uh, that's a certainly striking image that uh, will last readers well beyond the book, whether they'll be pleased with it <laughs> yeah. or not. Now, uh, I'm, I'm hoping you will continue your explorations of... of uh, Southern Ohio, and, and uh, I'm hoping you're already doing so. Are you working on another novel? Yeah, I'm working on another novel now, and uh, it's set in uh, Mead, mm -hmm. Ohio, which is my uh, name for Chillicothe. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I'm just you know pretty much uh, just working doing the first draft right now, and uh, uh, I'm not even sure when that'll be done. Probably in the late fall. I don't really want to say too much more about oh, it because no. I'm just sort of, you know, I'm still exploring. Uh, well, it's um, it's best to write it rather than talk about it. I yes. know that many writers, and, and uh, I would f fully agree that to talk, talking about things is there's like a kind of a jinxing kind of thing that goes <laughs> on. And also, too, it's a dissipation. Yeah, I think so. Now, um, this The Devil All the Time is uh, such a, a great powerful story in some ways you're you're plotting in your sense of what how to create a story and what a story is is really unique and, and I really really like it I and you say you just kind of but this for you it just grew like a mold on the side of a coffee cup you left in the <laughs> garage for too long well I I guess yeah in a way because you know it took me about uh probably two and a half years mm -hmm. to write that book. But I wasn't really working on it all the time. Mm -hmm. I, I can be a bit lazy, especially mm -hmm. if you got a little bit of money in the bank. And mm -hmm. and at the time, I you know I was doing okay, and I don't need a lot of money anyway. But uh, so I was, but all the time, even if I wasn't working on it, I was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And then another thing, though, too, is that, and I've read lots of novels where nothing really happened, and, and I enjoyed them immensely but i just have this you know i wanted there to be a plot mm. and i wanted there to be you know uh things to move pretty fast you know and so even though it was slowly growing you know at the same time i was i was thinking about uh, ways to of course you know make it all make all that information into that uh, stick it all in there without confusing the reader and at the same time moving the plot forward 
as fast as I could. Maybe not. I would. I wouldn't call it maybe a page turner, but um, you know, at least where there is, uh, there there's always something going on. I would call um, it a page turner. I it kept me up. It's really, it's very very compelling, and it's really. I thought it's the word that that I think gets me is engaging. I re and it's so weird as a reader because what you're reading is repugnant and despicable <laughs> and awful and you know horrifying by turn but there's something in there that just really keeps us riveted and and that's a skill that comes with uh, that you can't buy you can't find on the side of the road but it might grow in a cabinet if you put a <laughs> yeah. piece of rotting meat there for long enough well you know i mean i've always believed and you know and i heard this from you know uh reading different interviews with writers and, and stuff like that is that you need some trouble, you know, for the book to really be interesting. And, you know, I may go a little overboard on the trouble. <laughs> I'm sure I do. Um, I take that to heart. But um, somehow you make it fun. And, and I'm curious about that. When you're creating this, I, there's lots of stuff in here that you probably shouldn't laugh at or find funny unless you're somewhat twisted. Right, right. <laughs> and I think most readers will be alarmed at their own reaction. <laughs> I wonder, were you alarmed at your own reaction at this? Uh, well, you know, I think part of that comes, uh, and I guess I would call it black humor, mm -hmm. maybe, is um, from working in a paper mill for 32 years with guys who have a really weird sense of humor, you know? <laughs> And uh, can laugh about things that you probably shouldn't be laughing about, and I and I think probably a lot of that just kind of rubbed off. Uh, but uh, yeah, there is stuff in there that I hope you know. And of course, not everybody's going to find it funny, but I hope some people find you know a little bit of humor. You know, one thing about say the devil all the time or knock him stiff, which I tried to include a little bit of humor because I thought, okay, this will sort of, you know, soften things a little bit and you won't feel so much like killing yourself at the end, you know, when you get to finish the book, you know, if there's been a few laughs. So um, that's where that comes from. It, you know, and this too is, uh, though it's not set in the South, it really has the feel of the classic Southern Gothic um, mm -hmm. hanging. So I, I'm curious, uh, how how much of that you just comes out of the your setting and your perceptions and how much of that comes out of you know your awareness of that kind of tradition i i probably at least half and half because mm -hmm. you know the place where i live in ohio is about uh we're about an hour drive south of columbus and ohio's kind of weird in that, that when you get about 30 minutes uh, south of Columbus, you know, you, you, it sort of turns into hills and, you know, all this sort of thing. And then up above there, up north, it's all flat. And it really is, it's almost like there's, to me anyway, it feels like there's a, a dividing line between those two parts of the state. Uh, and two, in Knockhamstiff, when I was growing up there, I grew up around a lot of people who were from Kentucky and West Virginia and, and that sort of thing. And and so that manner of speaking, you know, that uh, uh, their, you know, um, dialogue or whatever, you know, that sort of um, rubbed off on me, their, their jokes and their witticisms and all that stuff. And then, too, I, um, I read a lot of Southern writers, mm. you know, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Harry Cruz, Larry Brown, Barry Hanna. You know, I, I read a lot of those people, and I— Probably, I was reading them before I ever started writing, you know, trying to write. And uh, they were probably, before I started writing, they were definitely my, you know, my favorite writers, the Southern writers. And, and they are pretty much still. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it was, it was all part of, you know, even though I lived in Ohio, I was sort of like, you know, it, it's a little more Southern, mm. you know, even the cooking and everything, so... 
Now, there's a lot of religion in this book. Well, there's more preachers in this book than <laughs> yeah, <there's... laughs> So I'm wondering how how much religion informs your own inner life and how much it's just you've seen it and and how much just the fact that humans are, tend to be religious um, informs the way you write about the, both the world, the world you create and the characters you create within that world. I think that you know, on a personal level, it's not, you know, it, it's not coming from there mm-hmm. for me. It's not coming from a personal thing because my parents didn't go to church and I never went to church until actually till about uh, just a, about two years ago or so. And I started going to uh, Episcopalian church with my wife who, uh, you know, she's always going to church. Uh, so, uh, that was really my first experience with mm. uh, with going to a, you know a church like that, um, but at the same time, there was a church right in the middle of Knockham Stiff, just uh, you know, just all uh, a few hundred yards from my house, and I knew a lot of people who were. Uh, you know, Baptist and uh, fundamentalist and, you know, pretty much that sort of religion. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though I didn't know a whole lot about it, you know, I've I've always been, I guess, uh, in a way, maybe uh, not fascinated with it or anything, but I always thought it was... uh, well, it makes a good subject. Mm. Uh, it did for me, and um, I don't know. That's that's really about all I can say about that. It just uh, sort of was. Uh, I, I wanted it to be one of the themes of the book. Uh, you know this this religion, and uh, so that's what we did. What's interesting about it, and this is true of all your themes, is that um, it's a theme that emerges from from what happens as opposed to seeming like uh, the the novel doesn't seem like a thesis. It, it seems like I say like a it's there's a very organic feel to this novel. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that things have to happen where at least they seem like they're happening naturally, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then they also have to seem, even though there are some very bizarre characters and very weird things that happen in the book, I think you have to make it seem like they really could happen. Mm. Or, you know, this isn't really, you know... It's not too outlandish. ...beyond the realm, you know. No. No. I've been speaking with Donald Ray Pollock. His new novel is The Devil All the Time. Thank you for speaking with me, Don. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.